Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to Be the Informed Patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we're talking about the early stage of kidney disease with Dr. Michael Leotis. He's an assistant professor of medicine at Upstate and the division chief of nephrology. Welcome back to The Informed Patient, Dr. Leotis. I'm delighted to be here, Amber. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I guess the first thing is for people to know if they're at risk for chronic kidney disease. So can we go over what the risk factors are? One of the things that tends to be a big risk factor for patients that I take care of with chronic kidney disease is diabetes, high blood pressure, and really even a family history of kidney disease can really influence whether or not somebody may be at risk. As we think about just diabetes and those three things, family history, diabetes, high blood pressure, they can really increase your risk. Are men and women equally at risk? Well, they're almost the same. And we don't know exactly why that women are a little bit more prone to kidney disease than men are. Basically like 13 or 14% women and 12% men, but it's different. And what I'd like to actually kind of tease out a little bit more is there's kidney disease. And then, well, I'm sure we'll get into this about dialysis. So not everybody that has kidney disease will ever progress to dialysis. So I want to make sure that we can separate those as we go along. So what's the difference between men and women? Well, the thought is And we don't have solid evidence on this one, but the theory is, well, women are more prone to recurring urinary tract infections, complications that can happen with pregnancy. And sometimes with pregnancy, they eclampsia, large weight gains, other things that can specifically affect the kidneys during that time. But men, even though they're a little bit less likely to have chronic kidney disease, They're the ones that can progress to dialysis, which is what we're all trying to avoid. And that also is a little bit more complicated too, because the theory is, well, maybe it's testosterone levels with men that are a little bit higher and that that may have an influence for progressing more rapidly with kidney disease. Maybe it's the protective aspect of estrogen that prevents women from ultimately progressing as quickly to end-stage kidney disease. And then there's the other things that are those factors that are a little bit fuzzier. For instance, perhaps men engage in riskier lifestyle habits. Perhaps men are more likely to smoke, for instance, more likely to consume alcohol, more likely to get into severe auto accidents. And so it's like a big pool of things that influence both. But at the end of the day, it's very similar factors that come into play for both men and women. What impact does obesity or being overweight have on the kidneys and how well they can function? So obesity is becoming a big epidemic in many countries that are more developed. And so part of where I think about obesity playing in this is It's sort of like a Bonnie and Clyde. There's something else over there with obesity that then starts to rob somebody of their health. For instance, people that are obese may have more of a tendency of having type 2 diabetes. People that are obese may have higher blood pressures. 
Uh, and then other things too, there are the subtle things. Think about heart disease. There's more of a risk of sleep apnea. Is there maybe more of a risk of a stroke for people that are obese? And then it becomes even more complex than that because we think obesity is linked to so many bad things that people go through. Could it be that this is one thing that's coming on up in a lot of countries right now, which is fatty liver disease. Being obese can add to liver disease that then can subsequently cause any disease. Metabolic syndrome that maybe some of our listeners may be familiar with, where you have high blood pressure, high blood sugars, high cholesterol. There's these thoughts about whether or not this causes more issues even with cancers. There's been some links between some types of cancers, colon, breast cancer, liver cancer, and kidney cancer with people that are obese. And I also was going to ask about whether our risk for developing kidney disease gets greater as we get older, because I don't hear about kidney disease that often in younger people. Is this a disease for people who are older? Kidney disease is not very prevalent in our younger patients, but there are types of kidney disease that do affect younger individuals that tend to be more inherited or that can be issues with regards to different type of medical problems that have taken place very early on. But the answer in short is yes, as we get older, we are more risk for kidney disease. However, I like to think about it as almost like that time where you get a relatively new car and everything is working so nicely. Everything is nice and smooth, but as it goes on, there's things that come on up and things have to be repaired. Things have to be replaced. Things that happen to that automobile as it gets older. People are in the same way too. You can think about the accumulated mileage of not treating your high blood pressure very well. The accumulated mileage of not taking care of your diabetes very well. The accumulated mileage of living an unhealthy lifestyle, for instance, smoking, that may over time increase your risk of chronic kidney disease. And the more years that you engage in those, unfortunately, add up and they can result in you having chronic kidney disease later in life. You're listening to Upstate's The Informed Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Upstate's Chief of Nephrology, Dr. Michael Leotis, about treatment for early-stage kidney disease. From what I understand, it's hard to notice symptoms early in kidney disease. So what do you tell patients to look out for? Well, that's the challenge, Amber, because kidney disease is a type of disease that you don't have symptoms until you are very well progressed. Up to about 90% of individuals don't even know that they have chronic kidney disease. And even basically 40% of those with severe kidney disease don't even know that they have it. And so that is really not to scare our audience, but it is to empower our audience to go ahead and seek early physicals so that they can go ahead, do the appropriate screening, get looked at and make sure that they're doing well. Because as with any problem, the sooner that you can go ahead and intervene or recognize it, the more options that are available for you to try and with your healthcare team to try and intervene 
and get it better and stabilize it. So there are tests that can tell us if our kidneys are healthy? There are indeed. So Amber, there's two very simple tests that can be done. And usually these are done at everyone's annual physical exam. One is a urinalysis, which is a very simple way of looking at how the kidneys are in some ways removing some waste. You can tell a lot by making sure that there's no infection there, making sure that there's no protein in there, making sure that there's no blood in there because urine should be sterile. And it's a very, very simple test to do. Additionally, there's blood work too that can be done. And as most of us know, when we go on in and get our physical exams done, we get cholesterol screening, we get basic metabolic panel, but it is actually a very nice and easy screen that gives us something called the creatinine. Creatinine helps us to identify, well, how are we doing from a kidney perspective with filtering? And it really helps our primary team to think about uh, the individual and say, are they doing well or not doing well? It's a very useful test to do. Is there a recommendation for at what age people should start being screened for kidney disease? They're not solid recommendations. However, many uh, medical societies will say those that have high blood pressure, those that have diabetes should be screened for kidney disease. People above the age of 60 should be screened for kidney disease. However, what we've realized is because of the simplicity of the urinalysis and the blood work that we ordinarily do, odds are that those are done anyways as a routine, most physicians or advanced practice providers' offices. If you were developing kidney disease, would you feel pain in your kidneys and your back near where the kidneys are located? Is that how you would tell? No, you actually wouldn't. People that talk about having kidney pain, in general, they may be thinking more along the lines of kidney stones. So kidney stones can cause kidney disease. And if we're really thinking about a proper definition, yeah, you're not supposed to have kidney stones. It does and can cause problems down the road, but mostly it's asymptomatic. There is no pain. You may find that perhaps with very advanced degrees of kidney disease that you can have trouble thinking clearly, itchiness swollen feet and ankles, but not the kind of swollen feet and ankles that we get if we stand on our feet all day long at work. This is something where if you were actually to press on that swelling, you can actually leave a dent. It's called edema, it's a different pitting edema to think about. Sometimes people can have even puffiness around the eyes. But again, those are very, very advanced levels of disease. Most people, again, it's very subtle. You won't have pain. You won't necessarily see a red appearing urine and you are otherwise asymptomatic. You mentioned kidney stones. If someone has a history of having had kidney stones, does that increase their risk of developing kidney disease? It does to the extent that it depends on the frequency of the stones and what else those stones cause with a patient, because people will equate passing a kidney stone to some of the most excruciating pain that they've ever experienced. And as this stone passes, sometimes it can even 
obstruct or basically block the passage of urine from the kidney down to the bladder. And so when you have those instances that can cause infection, that can cause kidney failure on that type, kidney stones themselves, they're a big burden to society and cause billions of dollars, lost wages for people, hospitalizations, pain, and also sometimes even what people do to try and help to alleviate that pain, such as ibuprofen, Motrin, Elite, Naproxen, that can actually cause problems to down the road for individuals. Can you go over what the glomular filtration rate means, the GFR? What does that measure? Sure. So the glomerular filtration rate really helps to pinpoint a little bit better on the actual health of your kidneys in terms of how well they are functioning. And so what that is designed to do is an equation that takes into account age and sex and helps to put together basically a number that helps the provider to think about how the kidney is functioning at a snapshot in time. And if you have a series of those numbers over time, and this is calculated off of blood work using that creatinine that we talked about a little bit earlier. And if you have that as a series of measurements over time, which can be months or years, then you can see also and plot out a rate of progression where is the kidney disease staying stable? Is it getting worse? How much worse? And it can help us to think about other different interventions or other different things along the way to try and prevent worsening of the kidney function. Is the GFR number, is it normal for that to fluctuate or be high one day and low the next? No, it's a fairly stable number over time. And it can fluctuate just a little bit by small amounts based on if you are let's just say volume depleted. If you don't drink enough water, if you're not well hydrated, they can fluctuate just a little bit, but in most individuals, it's a very consistent and reproducible number. Is it useful and accurate for all ages and genders and races? Well, there's a few things to think about on that one. So let's kind of split it up into three separate questions with what you asked. And I'll take the last one first. When in the GFR and the equation was first put together, it took race into account. Uh, and there's these theories that perhaps people of African heritage may produce more creatinine, may have variations in muscle mass. And what it did over time is really not take into account the heterogeneity of our population here. Uh, where we can go ahead and say, well, maybe race isn't something that we should be including in medicine and in these kinds of calculations, because it may very well have underserved people of African heritage. So we're trying to remove that completely. And so thankfully we have far newer ways of looking at this. So race is included. Now, when we think about ages and genders. Really, we're looking at adults and we're looking at it, that it can be very good, especially when we're looking for people that are outside of basically stage one or stage two chronic kidney disease. 
So it is useful. It's another tool to help us to put together a picture and to really put forth the collaborative effort between the patient and the healthcare provider to really talk about and have a frank discussion about any function, what does it mean, where are they at, and what are things that are maybe affecting the kidney function. Now, you mentioned stage one and stage two. How many stages are there of kidney disease? There are actually five stages of chronic kidney disease, the Amber, and then I think about one additional one after that. There's five stages, stage one, two, three, four, five. One is very mild, five is very severe. And then after that, it's people that will require dialysis. And so that's kind of the way that I think about it. And people sometimes do progress from stage one to two to three to four to five and then to dialysis. Or sometimes it can be very abrupt depending upon circumstances or very traumatic medical events that go on. Is stage six, when you're on dialysis, is that considered kidney failure? Kidney failure is basically, in a way, we kind of use it very differently. So let's not talk about dialysis stage six, but it's its own separate category. But kidney failure is anything that is less than optimal kidney function. But just because uh, you may have some decrease in your kidney function, does not mean, and I want to really emphasize that for our audience, does not mean that you will progress to dialysis. I mean, we have 37 million people in this country that have chronic kidney disease, and we have about 650,000 people on dialysis. So think about it as an upside down pyramid where you have a huge majority of people that have kidney disease, but relatively few that progress to dialysis. How long can a person last on dialysis? There is no limit. I've had patients and been on dialysis for over 25 years and going well. The challenge ultimately is, Amber, once again, kidney disease usually doesn't happen in a vacuum. If somebody has diabetes, a migraine will be that the kidneys are the first organs to actually cry uncle. They're the first ones to be affected. But that doesn't mean that that diabetes isn't affecting the heart, isn't affecting your immune system and its ability to fight off infection. And so what happens is that you may progress to dialysis. However, once you're at dialysis, those other chronic diseases are still there. They don't go away. They just unfortunately conquered the kidneys, but they're still having their way about on the heart on your muscle capacity, everything else that happens along the way. And so there isn't a set amount of time that somebody will be able to survive on dialysis. However, that said, the statistics are not very good for dialysis. It is a form of artificial life support, much like we have a lung machine that can help somebody to breathe if they can't breathe on their own or these ventricular assist devices that can be used for a heart, it is a form of artificial life support. And so be it as such, the odds are about 20% chance per 
per year uh, passing away by being on dialysis. How many people on dialysis are waiting for a kidney transplant? Well, we have probably in this country nearly 100,000 people that are waiting for transplant. And as time goes on, and again, they're still staying on dialysis if they progress to that point or they have other things that are going on, there's a window of opportunity that we all experience in our lives of health. And being able to be healthy enough to undergo a transplant is also key too. So the longer that somebody is on dialysis, potentially the more challenging it be to ultimately get transplanted. And so you may be a candidate now for transplant, but if you remain in the need for a transplant for many years, it may very well be that something else comes on up and you're no longer are able to go through a very big surgery or be able to adequately care for a kidney. So it sounds like a lot of people that are on dialysis are not going to get a kidney or, or not on the list for it and won't, but the dialysis keeps them alive. And it does. And again, it is the net that we have, albeit not perfect, for people that go through all five stages of kidney disease and progress then to dialysis. Now, unfortunately, not everybody is a candidate. Hopefully, as time goes on, there's more and more research being done on organs that are from animals that could be more biocompatible for humans, but we're really not at that point in time just yet. And so we're relying on people that are either altruistic donors, a loved one donating to a loved one, or I've had some amazing individuals that have donated kidneys because they say, I've got two kidneys. I'd like to donate to somebody because I read about somebody being in a need for a kidney. I met a wonderful individual from Buffalo that was like that just recently. But many other organs are through the deceased donor pool and to click their donor cards. And unfortunately, there's way too many people that do pass away and take all their organs with them when they could actually really help other people from kidneys, lungs, heart, liver, et cetera. Is there any patient that's ever able to take dialysis temporarily? Does dialysis help the kidney heal or get better and then they don't have to have it anymore? We tend to put people that have that kind of acute kidney injury and we have them temporarily on dialysis. Well, whatever the underlying cause that caused them to be on dialysis, hopefully gets better. Think about it this way. If you've ever burned your hand on a stove, you go, ow, and you burn it bad enough that you cause a blister, it doesn't look great the next day. In fact, it may even look a lot worse for the next couple of days. And then it starts to get better as it starts to heal. Think about an injury to a kidney that you can't necessarily feel or touch. You could tell if you are no longer making urine, well, that could be an issue too. But giving it time to heal, is what dialysis really provides the individual. So it just takes the place where their kidneys aren't able to suffice and allows them to go ahead and heal. So does dialysis help in healing the kidneys? No, it just basically does what the kidneys would ordinarily do while those kidneys are hopefully on the process of healing. You're listening to Upstate's The Informed Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Upstate's Chief of Nephrology, Dr. Michael Leotis, 
about treatment for early-stage kidney disease. People with kidney disease, how were they affected by COVID during the pandemic? Kidney disease really should have been and has been thought of as a pre-existing condition. So as we were talking about people that were affected by COVID, those with pre-existing conditions, high blood pressure, diabetes, other infections, and chronic kidney disease, uh, they were at increased risk for further progression and with the complications that COVID could actually and did unfortunately cause many, many Americans and people all around the world. Let me ask you, if someone is told they have protein in their urine, does that indicate kidney disease? Not necessarily. It depends on the age of the individual. Sometimes with some individuals, especially younger individuals, they may have asymptomatic protein, and that can be teased on out with a very simple kind of urine collection testing that's done either at nighttime and also during the day. But if you have protein in your urine and if it's measurable to that extent, then it does mean that something may be a mess. It may be issues with medications. It could be issues with the other diseases we were talking about, especially with diabetes. And individuals with diabetes may have proteinuria. And that is a sign that perhaps their diabetes has not been very well controlled or that they have other additional factors in addition to the diabetes, such as morbid obesity too, that, that need to be addressed the best that we can. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air with your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Upstate's Chief of Nephrology, Dr. Michael Leotis, about early-stage kidney disease. So what should primary care doctors do with patients who they suspect may be developing early-stage kidney disease? Maybe they have some protein in their urine. Maybe their GFR number is not exactly what it should be. Where do they go from there? That's where you have that conversation with your patients. Not every patient that has less than optimal kidney function needs to see a kidney specialist. It may very well be an opportunity to say, well, you know, if you are taking ibuprofen every single day for osteoarthritis, for instance, that is an opportunity to actually think about, well, how do we get off of that medication? It may be opportunities to have a more frank discussion regarding weight and the negative effects that it's having on the body. It may be, again, a discussion to be able to say to someone, your blood pressure is not responding to lifestyle modifications. This is where we need to go ahead and now really look at and start antihypertensive medications. It's all these different things where you could say the earlier that you touch this and make sure that you're putting together these interventions, the better off you will be and the fewer specialists, hopefully, that you'll need to see down the road. So at this stage, especially if it's early, can dietary changes make a difference or do you already have damage to the kidneys that won't be reversed? It depends on how long it's been going on for Amber. 
if we think about somebody that is taking ibuprofen and we've noticed that maybe there's a change and we say, let's stop it, let's repeat these labs and, and let's see how this changes in a week, I may very well go back to normal and we're like, oh, we caught this early. But if somebody has been taking it for years and what could have been stopped early on, this damage has been going on for a period of time. And so maybe can't stop it. Maybe what you can do is you can prevent it from further deterioration. But once you've lost any function, it's very few instances that you can go and regain that back. Kidney is a very interesting organ. It's about the size of your fist, Amber. Then we have two kidneys. And if you bend your elbows all the way back and kind of put it towards either side of your spine, it's roughly where your kidneys are located, but they're full of capillaries, blood vessels, and millions of microscopic filters that are filtering your blood all the time, 24 seven. And so the filters themselves are, dare I say, a little fragile. If they get damaged, they don't regenerate. And so if they get damaged to an extent where it causes that permanent dysfunction, well, I can't fix those, but my goal is to make sure I can preserve all the other ones that are there. So if a patient has kidney disease, does it necessarily affect both kidneys? Yeah, it's rare that it just affects only the one side. The one side, it would be that example back when we were talking a little bit earlier about kidney stones. If you have a kidney stone that causes an acute blockage on one kidney, well, I can see that as causing just an individual kidney issue, but ordinarily what affects the right kidney affects the left and vice versa. Well, I'd like to have you focus a little on how we can keep our kidneys healthy. And you've touched on a few things I wanted to ask you more about. Why is ibuprofen bad for the kidneys? Ibuprofen in short doses is fine. It's very tolerable. But over time, the benefits that we have from just decreased pain, especially with osteoarthritis, and especially as we've had so many problems with narcotics and fentanyl and so forth that used to be used far more frequently pain control, people have resorted to using more ibuprofen. I see this used quite often, especially in student athletes, because it really helps with relieving pain, especially after a tough game, a tough workout, et cetera. But what it does is actually it affects prostaglandins in the body. So in short, what it does is it, it can affect blood flow to the kidneys and it can decrease blood flow to the kidney. So over time, if you are decreasing blood flow enough to the kidneys, the kidneys will respond by unfortunately getting smaller and unfortunately causing the kidney disease to get more uh, pronounced. I see. We also hear about salt in the diet, but I don't really understand why that's bad. We need salt in our diets, Amber. You cannot get rid of salt entirely from our diets because it is a part of us and it's a part of what makes our cellular growth and processes and function take place. So sodium is really an essential component. But what we're really talking about here, Amber, is excessive sodium intake. And people, especially that have heart disease and kidney disease, 
we really counsel them in trying to limit sodium to really no more than 2,000 or 2,500 milligrams per day. And the thought is that sodium in excessive amounts for some people that are what we call salt sensitive, what it can do is it can cause increased fluid retention, increased hypertension, and that in itself then causing this cascade of effects downstream, especially with the hypertension aspect of things. Hypertension is that one thing that affects every single part of the body. We're focusing on the kidneys, but the kidneys don't act in isolation. We're all one big domino set, the way that I think about us. And what's good for our kidneys will be good for our heart, which will be good for our liver, which will be good for our lungs, which will be good for our brain and decrease age associated vascular dementia, other things that happen over time, decreasing stroke risk. So the way that I look at it is salt is absolutely necessary in our diets to some extent. It's just the excessive amounts that we look at. And unfortunately it is ubiquitous out in our diets and out in the community, especially if you go and indulge a little bit more in fast food, you'll find that they have very high rates of sodium. How do smoking or vaping affect the kidneys? I think about smoking and vaping somewhat similarly. There's this kind of misconception that Vaping is a healthier form of smoke. And it makes no sense. There's no healthier form of smoke. And the way that I look at it is, though you may not have more of the cigarette-related smoke inhalation that affects not only the increased risk of lung cancers and throat and oral cancers, but vaping itself has the nicotine components and as we've seen troubling reports you know, with regards to just some of the chemicals that are in the vaping liquids, that can cause some severe lung problems. But both of those things over time, what smoking does is it, it increases your risks of blood pressure and heart disease, and therefore subsequently causes that domino effect that we were talking about that can affect your kidneys. And we think too, that it can cause some narrowing of the blood vessels in the capillaries within the kidneys. And so again, the biggest thing about smoking is it affects so many different organ systems and the effects of nicotine, the addictive aspects of nicotine and the chemicals that are in the vaping solutions. There is no healthy form of smoking or vaping, unfortunately. Before we wrap up. How much water do we need to drink each day for our kidneys? That was a big question that we had about 25 years ago. And well, how much is too much or what is the bare minimum of fluid intake that we need? It's very interesting, Amber. It was teased out initially over at the University of Pennsylvania. And basically what it found was these studies that you drink when you're thirsty. Instances where you need to consume more fluid than normal are really those instances and there are specific instances such as with recurring kidney stones, where the thought is that you need to have a very robust fluid intake of about two liters to two and a half liters of fluid a day, ideally water that will help to flush out these microscopic crystals 
out of the body before they become big stones. The thought is if you throw a stone into a pond, it just goes plop, it goes right to that bottom. But if you put it into like a raging river, it should hopefully go downstream. And that's the thought about people that have these stones. Well, how much water? There are a lot of social media influencers that will say, well, you need to drink six to eight glasses of water a day in order to maintain healthy skin, healthy kidneys, healthy everything about your body. But the truth is, it really is drink when you're thirsty and making sure that you are hydrated appropriately. And what that hydration will mean will vary based on just what you do. It, today is a beautiful sunny day in Syracuse and it's 89 degrees. We're going to be drinking a whole lot more than if it's one of those cold days that we sometimes may have. Unfortunately, it's a wishy-washy answer, but it is about making sure that you are just cognizant that when you're thirsty, grab something and drink. I like that advice. Drink when you're thirsty. It's easy to understand and easy to do. Thank you, Dr. Leotis, for making time for this interview. Amber, I was delighted to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. My guest has been Dr. Michael Leotis, the Chief of Nephrology at Upstate and an Assistant Professor of Medicine. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine, brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and produced by Jim Howe. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu informed. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. <laughs>